This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 6, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, we start with contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade. She spent 12 days with archaeologists searching for a lost city. We talk about how you lose a city and how you might go about finding one. And I talk with Christophe Coupe about the data density of different languages and the relationship of that density to how fast we talk and how fast we can process language. Now we have contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade, and she went on a hunt for a lost city. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Sarah. Can you talk a little bit about your journey? Of course. So we met up in a city called Comitan in Chiapas, and then we drove about seven hours to part of the Mexican-Guatemala border that's a little corner. So we were staying at this eco-lodge we had guides from that eco lodge who took us into the reserve Montesasule. So we went up first in a motorboat for a few hours when we set up a base camp. But basically from there, we were kayaking and hiking in the jungle. And it was extraordinarily difficult. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> if there is no trails carved, the guides would machete through through the jungle, but everything has spines. Everything is so different from each other. Like there's so much information and all the plants are so yeah. heterogeneous and there's just like so much stuff around you that it's hard to even interpret individual things. So it's very easy to grab onto a tree that was covered in spines and not really even realize it until your hand was also covered in spines. They had to cut every yeah. step of the way. Every step. I've been in some pretty remote places before, but never a place where humans really hadn't been for decades or potentially centuries. And that was very, very hard. And it felt like the environment was just pushing us, pushing us out, you know, and making it impossible. And the rivers were also completely covered in, in brush and had to be, we had a machete from the kayaks and like, it was really intense. Okay. Should I spoil it? Should I say whether or not you found a missing city? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to talk about it if we don't say what happened, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so spoilers, you did not find a long lost city. What, what were you looking for? I went to Chiapas, Mexico with some archaeologists who were looking for a city called Sacbalam, which was the capital of the Lacandon Maya, 
there's sort of two groups named the Lacandon. One exists today and one is pre-Columbian Maya group. And we were looking for this previous Maya group's last capital. Sakbalam means the white jaguar and the Lacandon built it basically to hide from Spanish invaders, which they successfully did for over 200 years. Wow. What, what's the timeline here? And I guess I should ask, what century are we in? Yeah. So the Spanish first come to Mexico, to central Mexico, in the early 1520s. So Tenochtitlan, which is now Mexico City, the Aztec capital, falls in 1521. And that's a pretty straightforward conquest story. The Aztecs were an empire. The Spanish were also an empire or wanted to be. So they took over that all that land. But when you get to the Maya world, it's really, really different because there's not really a centralized control. Every city is independent of each other and they're all in this elaborate web of allies and enemies. The Spanish can't come in, conquer one city like Chichen Itza or whatever, and then everything passes to them. They have to do it one at a time. Getting back to this missing city, Sakbalam, the Lacandon live there, but they didn't always live there. They actually moved their city to this harder to find location. Yeah. The Lacandon lived in this island in Lake Miramar, which is in Chiapas also. They were attacked by the Spanish at least once, maybe a couple of times, I can't quite remember. And they had held out, but they knew they weren't going to be able to do that forever. So preemptively in kind of the late 1500s, they pack up, move really deep into the jungle and built this other city called Sacbalam. But eventually Sacbalam was taken by the Spanish. Can you talk about how that happened? By this point, it's the 1690s. The English colonies in the U.S. are firmly established at this point. I think Harvard University has been founded. This is very much the world we live in now. Most of the quote-unquote conquests that are going on right now are not huge military invasions. It's more proselytizing. So these two priests are like, we have to convert the people of Sakbalam. They're devoted to this idea. They hire these local Maya guides who lead them around in circles for five months without them realizing it because the local Maya are so scared of Sakbalam. Like the people in Sakbalam have been raiding other Maya. Months and months go by of them just like walking around in circles. And then finally they realize something's going on. And they hire the leader of another local Maya group. And we don't really know what his motivation was. But if you think of the Lacandon being scary and potentially having attacked this town, this guy may have been like, whatever, enough with this. He takes the Spanish there. It's mostly diplomatic. They're not immediately killed as previous Spanish visitors were. They convince sort of a retinue of the Lacandon leaders to come with them to a city in Guatemala for more diplomacy, basically. But on the way there, on the way back, almost all of the Lacandon leaders die. They get sick and die. And it sort of collapses. And there's not like a big battle. The Spanish descend on this town of a couple of hundred Lacandon with like a thousand of their soldiers and their allied Maya soldiers. Sakbalam gives in really easily at that point. And then it is a Spanish town for another 15, 20 years. And then everyone is relocated to closer to the Pacific coast of Guatemala, which was part of the Spanish colonial policy of, it's called reducing Maya communities. So they move right. people out of where they've always lived and make them live in these new communities where they get easier to control. What surprises me then after all of those events is that the location of Sacbalam is not known. 
Yeah, no, it surprised me too, because it is on some Spanish maps. I mean, these are like 1700 maps, they're not satellite maps, you know. It was connected to the Spanish world for a while, but only for a pretty short time. So they didn't really have a huge investment in the place. When they move people out, the jungle stays the jungle. Like mm-hmm. there's not a huge amount of clear cutting. So today, the location of Sacbalam is within this national park in Mexico called Montes Azules. And it's considered an extremely remote part of Mexico. There are no trails, no roads. Nobody's allowed to live there. Well, you went with a group of archaeologists to try and visit this lost city. What what made them think that, A, they could find it, and B, what would they get out of finding it? Despite them existing for, you know, overlapping with the Spanish colonial state for a couple of centuries, there's really no information about what it was like to live in Sacbalam or any of the other independent Maya capitals that existed around this time. Sacbalam wasn't the only one, it was, but it was the second to last to to be conquered. They want to know who they were trading with, how connected they were to the outside world, how not connected they were. How did they do this? How did they live in such isolation for so long? So the reason they thought they could find it is, or the method that they used was looking at these Spanish documents from the time after Stockholm had been conquered and Spanish visitors would go and then they would go other places. They would record their routes and how long it took them to travel to different landmarks like certain rivers or certain other towns. So you can construct a possible arc of locations of the city. And basically we were trying to get as close to that as possible. So if you have your starting point and then they say, oh, we traveled for seven days, you know about how far they went in a circle. Exactly. It's going to be on one side of the circle and not the other. Like you can make some inferences. And they didn't record it in kilometers or anything that... measure of distance we would use. So you'd have to estimate how far they could walk in a day. And it's quite fuzzy, but it's a starting point. You do have a description of what the Spanish, how they described Sacbalam when they arrived. Yeah, it was about a hundred houses, which were probably made of adobe. So they will not have survived until now. There were three community buildings, not quite temples, but like city halls. And those would have had stone foundations. And that's what the archaeologists are interested in finding. The region today is known for scarlet macaws, the sort of iconic red parrots. And apparently the Lacandone had semi-domesticated them. And every day at 5 p.m., they would fly out of the forest and land on all the houses. And the Spanish thought that was amazing. And so do I. (laughs) Do you feel like you were able to keep the same pace as the people who had traveled to Sacbalam before, you know, when you were looking at previous trips? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, we weren't carrying all of our stuff. They would have been like we did set up base camps. They probably would have been wearing stuff that was really tough to walk around in, you know, like lots of wool and potentially metal. This was not easy for them either. That was one of the major things I was thinking about in the jungle. I don't really care about the Spanish conquistadors. <laughs> like we, I think we pay far too much attention to their experience yeah. in, in history because they're the ones who, who got to write it. But I was really taken aback by how similar our experience would have been to theirs because, of course, the Lacandon knew what they were doing and like we didn't. So yeah. we, we, had, we were much more similar to the Spanish. And I felt like if you have a city, if you have 100 people hiding out in the jungle against a globalizing empire, like it's only a matter of time until they will be found and incorporated into that empire. 
I came away thinking that that really wasn't true at all. It was so hard to do this that the conquest of Sakhalam and basically every other place in the Americas was basically a historical accident and a fluke. The, the conquistadors had to rely on locals to help them find the city. Do you think that that's something that the archaeologists are going to pursue as well? Help was like vital for the Spanish and it was vital for archaeologists now. The one sort of discovery, quote unquote, that they were able to make on this trip was these classic period Maya ruins, which is a thousand years before Sakhalam would have been founded. But this town in the region knew about some ruins in this little patch of forest that they protect as a reserve. And they took the archaeologists there. And it was really amazing. I mean, I've seen a lot of unexcavated archaeological sites, mm-hmm. and this was a really special one. And they never would have known it was there if, if the local people hadn't been willing to trust them and, and tell them about it. With Sakhalam, the hard part is that nobody lives in Montezasules. There are people mm-hmm. who go in there, like there are firefighters who might know the reserve. There are people who have lived there as sort of refugees, like from the Guatemalan Civil War, a lot of people took refuge there. There are people who know Montezasules a little bit better than the average person in Chiapas, but because nobody lives in it, it's just so hard to find those people and it's so hard to find the help that you really need to be able to do efficient archaeology, let's say. How far did you travel in all of this? I think we kayaked 90 kilometers in four days. This was a round trip. So we went up river 45 kilometers and that was already from the base camp, I think. A lot of kayaking, like definitely more than I've done in my life. The walking was, it was really shocking how slow the walking was. It was about a kilometer an hour, which is, you know, if I'm walking in a city, I go a kilometer in 10 minutes, you know? So the walking was, I think it was like eight kilometers or something this hike, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, (laughs) it was not very long, but it felt like we had climbed Mount Everest. A lot of archaeology is done with LIDAR these days, using radar from planes to find hidden structures. Would that be helpful here in this area? It could potentially work. I think it would be really great to do it over Montesasules, and I know the archaeologists would love to do that too. National Geographic funded this huge LIDAR survey of a very similar place in Guatemala, and it revealed tens of thousands of of structures that archaeologists didn't know about. The thing about LIDAR is that it's pretty expensive um, and it takes a lot of coordination. And also when you do LIDAR, you still have to go out to the potential site and see it. So it doesn't totally save you from the explorer jungle adventure that we that we had. What are these archaeologists going to do next? Are they going to go back? Yeah, they are going to go back, which I found a little bit mind-boggling. But they're really committed to exploring this area of Chiapas and Montezules. And what this did was it gave them some information about how fast the Spanish could travel. Like maybe it was a little slower than we had thought. Maybe Sacualam is closer to these landmarks if you have to go so slow. A lot of the information on the satellite maps about the exact routes of the rivers turned out not to be totally right. So it made making a more accurate map much easier. And I think the most important thing it did probably was bring these archaeologists in closer contact with the communities down there, both the communities who who live in the towns and the guides themselves who know the reserve very well. It takes a lot of work to, to build the kind of trust you need to have people agree to show you what they know. 
especially since archaeology in Mexico, as in so many places, is often connected to the state and official narratives of the country and potentially land expropriation and things like that. People can be very wary of archaeologists for pretty good historical (laughs) reasons. Yeah. So, you know, you really have to spend a lot of time there showing them that you care about these places and you care about the current people's connection to those places and you're going to respect that. Okay. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Thanks, Sarah. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent for Science. She's based in Mexico City. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Christophe Coupe about the information density of different languages. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Kroger. Did you know one in eight Americans struggle with hunger? Yet 40% of food produced in the U.S. gets thrown away. And a lot of that food waste happens at home. When food waste is sent to landfills, greenhouse gases are released. So it's a problem for our planet too. But think about this. If we redirected just one third of the food we waste to people in need, we would more than cover the unmet food needs across the country while helping to protect the planet. That's what Kroger is doing through their Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Foundation. Last year alone, Kroger donated 325 million meals to local food banks. And they've got some great tips to help reduce food waste at home, too. It's all part of their goal to achieve zero hunger and zero waste by 2025. Check out Kroger.com slash ZHZW to learn more. That's Kroger.com slash ZHZW. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about STEAM fun. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month, the kid in your life will receive a fun, engaging new project, which will help develop their creativity and their confidence. The projects are designed to spark tinkering and learning in kids of all ages. All projects, inspiration, and activities are created by a team of product designers in-house in Mountain View, California, and rigorously tested by kids. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project, detailed, easy-to-follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about that crate's theme. KiwiCo inspires kids to see themselves as makers and is on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com slash magazine. That's kiwico.com slash magazine. Now we have Christophe Coupe. He's here to talk about his science advances paper on the information density of languages. Hi, Christophe. Hi. What questions were you asking in this research? The deep underlying question is whether all languages, they are equally complex or whether we could find some languages that would be, let's say, more efficient than others to carry information. So you wanted to compare across a lot of languages. How many did you look at? We paid attention to 17 languages. We tried to pick them in different language families. Ah. So we tried to pick up languages that you could find in Europe, but also in Asia. Some, they have tones. Some don't. Some have many different syllables to build their lexicon. Some have less syllables. So there is quite a a variety. In your sample of these 17 languages, some have a lot of syllables and some have a few, like Japanese has a few hundred. 
English, almost 7,000. How did you go about lining up these different, these structurally different languages to measure information density? For each language, we had 10 participants. So they were asked to read aloud 15 texts, all made of five sentences. And these texts would be about different situations, pretending to be someone calling a, a service on the phone, uh, booking for, for a place at a restaurant, things like that. What did you measure about those recordings? What we measure basically is how fast these subjects talked. That is, more precisely, how many syllables they produce per second. You had a count of that, but then you wanted to see how fast it was in different languages? If you take any language, let's say you take French, for example, some people would speak faster than others. Right, yeah. So we were rather interested in average speech rates. And the way we measured them was to count how many syllables on average people would produce. So, for example, we would find that in a language like Thai, people would produce five syllables on average per second. But then if you would compare with other languages like Spanish, then you would find that the number of syllables per second on average would be significantly higher, huh. like seven or even eight syllables per second. So you would say kind of simply that they were speaking faster. Yeah. It's quite common. I would say that people would tell you, oh, Japanese people, they talk so fast or Spanish people, they talk very fast. When you actually measure it, this is what you observe. Hmm. Yeah, they speak faster on average than, let's say, uh, Mandarin speakers. So did you find a relationship between the number of syllables in the language and how fast people spoke? So we did not directly study the connection between the number of syllables and the speech rate. Right. What we were interested in is the amount of information carried on average by the syllables in a language hmm. and the relationship between this and the speech rate. So what kind of relationship did you find? what we find is a trade-off. You have some languages where each syllable on average carries quite a lot of information, mm -hmm. but then the speech rate tends to be quite low. You don't produce so many syllables per second. And then on the other side, you have languages where syllables are lighter, let's say, in terms of the information they carry. But then on average speakers, they would produce more syllables per second. Hmm. So that's the trade-off we observe. So there's this balance and there's a sweet spot in the center that these languages hover around? Right, that's the point. So we measure how many syllables you, you produce on average per second, let's say in French or in Spanish. And then we know how many bits of information each syllable carries on average in these languages. So if you multiply the bits of information per syllable by the number of syllables per second, then you get the number of bits per second. Mm. That is how much information you convey on average each second. Huh. And this is where languages actually look quite alike. Well, let's talk about why that might be. Let's bring in some of our understanding about cognition and the way the brain processes language. How does that, what we understand about that, fit with what your finding is about these features of language? What seems to be the case is that there is a deep connection between how we are able to track speech dynamics with the, the oscillation of some brain waves. These brain waves, they, are, they belong to a range called the theta range. So these 39 bits of information per second that we find on average for our languages basically corresponds to these oscillations that we tend to have in the brain. And this is something shared among human beings. So there's this oscillation in the brain when you're listening to speech? Yeah, likely. But actually, when you listen to speech, the activity is very complex. But what it seems is that there, is, there are some waves that tend to oscillate at a specific rhythm. And this rhythm basically corresponds to the 39 bits per second mm. that we observe on average for languages. If, say, I was trying to convey something that was very complex, 
I talk slower. It seems sensible, but it sounds kind of like this is something that's built in. In different situations, you may have to slow down because what you try to convey is more demanding, cognitively speaking. But actually, in our case, for example, we had this uh, 15 different texts covering different situations. And what we observed when we conducted our statistical analysis is that there is actually not so much variation from one context of communication to Mm. another. You may find that sometimes you need to slow down, but then if you look on average, then you are going to see that there there is not so much variation. Right. Do you think we're maxing out how our brains process language, or do you think this is just comfortable middle ground? It seems it's a comfortable middle ground because we all know we can speak much slower than usual and we can speak very fast. And we also observe uh, interspeaker variation. There are people who can Mm -hmm. speak extremely fast. So quite often when you read about this on the internet, for example, you will find out some people can speak like more than 300 words per minute, Mm -hmm. something like that. We were not interested in words, but in syllables. But of course, there is considerable variation. But what seems to exist is like this comfortable middle ground that on average, 39 bits of information per second is the sweet spot. It would correspond actually to these neurocognitive properties we talked about a few minutes ago. But there might also be people who are fast listeners, if you will. That's possible as well? That's something we did not investigate. So the the variation uh, when it comes to listening and processing speech rather than producing it. But of course, you might also expect variation. At least what we can say is that there is this uh, deep, intimate connection between producing and processing uh, speech. So let's say that, for example, as we we consider like very fast rate of uh, information, then it's hard for the person who speaks to produce it. And then it's going to be hard for the other one to decode. Right. And then maybe if it's very slow, then the amount of information that is going to be carried will be very low. And that makes maybe then the communication system not not very efficient. And there is, let's say, a minimal level of efficiency that we require for language to be a good thing, let's say. Languages change over time. We change how we use words. We change which words we use. How does that work with this idea of a rate of information? To be fair, we would definitely need to conduct more studies. And what is is a little bit difficult is that we don't have recordings for past centuries, things like that. That would be very good, but we don't have them. The idea that we have is that the density of information per syllable It's something that is connected to the structural properties of a language, Mm -hmm. while speech rate is something that rather belongs to speakers. So our idea is that because indeed languages keep changing, something that is very well known, if a language would change and that would drastically or significantly modify the amount of information per syllable, what we could expect is that people would adapt their speech rate so that the sweet spot is not lost. Yeah. Well, did this result surprise you? This is a very large study compared to previous studies that have looked at certain subset of languages or a certain amount of text. You know, were you surprised that the numbers coalesced the way they did? So, of course, we're quite happy to see the statistical results we get are quite strong, quite significant. I think maybe in a way we were not so surprised because we shared the idea that languages, they are equally efficient. Because if a, like, basically if a language would be less efficient, it would just change to become more efficient. So despite different strategies in terms of speech rate and information density, Mm -hmm. the fact that they share this average uh, rate to transmit information, it's something that tells you, yeah, indeed, languages, they are equally efficient. What is nice is that here we really look at language being used. So we look at it through time rather than trying to compare languages based only on their structural properties. Thank you so much, Christophe. You're welcome. My pleasure. 
Christophe Coupe is an associate professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Hong Kong. You can find a link to his science advances paper at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.